huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. My life kind of works in like 10-year blocks. Like I said, I did 10 years in the Marines, 10 years at the charity. I just kind of felt I needed to do something different. And, you know, my, my gut was telling me you could achieve more and be more and give more outside of this environment. And I had no idea what I was going to do. Mark, I want to start with a quote from you. Mm-hmm. People want to hear the gory details about getting my limbs ripped off. So can you take us back to Christmas Eve 2007? Absolutely. Um, so I was 24 years old at the time. I was a serving Royal Marines commando. And I was halfway through a six-month tour of Afghanistan. Now, my job, our job as Royal Marines, when we go into places like this, is to be at the front, you know, doing, doing the dangerous stuff, out there, patrolling through villages, meeting with the civilians that lived in the area, providing them with food and water and security and that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, when we're not out there being proactive and taking the fight to the enemy, we had a position that we had to defend from any incoming attacks. And we've been there about three months, three and a half months, doing a, what I'll say, a very good job. We had sustained no injuries and no casualties to that point. And on Christmas Eve, myself and a couple of my friends were called up to the headquarters compound of the base that we were working out of and given the brief on what was to be our next routine foot patrol. Now, we had not been given any intelligence to give us any cause for concern. We've been doing this for three, three and a half months. So we were very well versed in what it is that we had to do. So we got the brief, went back to our compound, got all of our kit, like we had done a million times before, went up to the rear entrance of the camp and we got ready to leave. Now, normally what we would do is we'd be given a task or a mission. We'd, we'd push out five, six, seven miles, be out for seven, eight, nine hours at a time, then come back. With this patrol, all we were told to do was to leave the rear entrance of our camp in two sections, with eight men in each section. One would go north, one would go south. We were told to patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp, pushing no more than 300 meters out. And then both sections would meet at the front entrance of the camp and secure the location, close things down, and finish up for the day. So in terms of what we've been doing to that point, this was very, very basic, low level kind of stuff. So we had no cause for concern. So the time came, rear entrance of the camp opened. I was second in command of the section that went north. The other guys went south and we went out and we did what we were tasked to do. About six hours into it, both of these sections then found themselves at the front entrance of the camp, ready to close things down and finish up for the day. Now my section were on a high piece of ground, what we called the North Fort. Just beneath us was forward operating base Robinson, the base that we were working out of. And then beneath that 
was the other section of men that we had left with earlier in the day. So because we're on the high ground, tactically, we're in a very advantageous position. So we were tasked with giving them what we call overwatch, which is basically a form of protection. They would go into the camp, get behind the perimeter wall, they'd be safe, they'd protect us, we come in, job done. Like I said, done it a million times before, very basic, low level kind of stuff. So we were given our task in, and the section commander, Corporal Sean Helsby, took his half of the section and started giving them fire positions. I took my half of the section, and about four meters in front of me, there was like a shallow bowl in the ground. So normally what you would do if you're out patrolling and you go farm and you stop, is you want to get behind a rock, a, rock, a tree, a building, a wall, or something that's going to give you some form of cover, cover from view and cover from fire. We didn't have any of those luxuries because we were basically on a ridge line. So I thought if we jump in this little bowl, about four meters in front of us to get on our bellies, you know, if you're going to try and attack us looking up to this high feature, you're not going to be able to see us. It's going to be very hard to engage us. So at the time, that was, in my mind, the best form of protection that I could give these guys. So we jumped in the bowl. They all started taking their fire positions. I stood back. I had a couple of the checks that I had to do to make sure that we were as defensive as we possibly could be. The guys took their fire positions and gave me the thumbs up, telling me they were happy. I did a few more last minute checks just to make sure we were completely safe. And then I started walking over towards the position that I selected for myself. And when I got there and I went to get down to my stomach, as I put my right knee on the floor, that was the minute that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Now I remember the entire thing in insanely graphic detail. Um, Can you tell us? Absolutely. Um, all right, so you've got to imagine the terrain that we're working in. It's very sandy, very dusty. So I kneel on this device, the device explodes, and this huge dust cloud is created. So temporarily, I can't see anything. I can hear everything. I can hear all the guys around me shouting, trying to figure out what's going on. I can't see anything, and I'm not in any pain. So my instinct, I had no idea what I'd done. My instinct was that we had been attacked. Now, from where we were positioned, I knew about 600 meters to my rear, down beneath uh, our location, there was a small rectangular forested block, and everything else around it was just like flat mud fields. So I thought, okay, this is where the attacks going to have came from, if the people attacking have got any sense. Now, I remember in my mind saying, turn around, Mark, turn around, ID where the enemy is, start shooting. When the lads see that I'm shooting, they'll start shooting, then we can make some sort of tactical withdrawal, get somewhere safer, and then neutralize the threat. Now, even though I can't see anything, after about four or five times in my mind of saying, turn around, turn around, turn around, I realized that my body wasn't moving and I, I couldn't figure out why. And so I did the only thing that I could do in that situation and I waited. I thought, I'll wait for this dust cloud to settle. I'll have a look around, see what's going on, assess the situation, make a call on the ground and then do what I need to do. So we got to about chest height and, and I'm full of adrenaline right now. My fight and flight's kicked in. I'm extremely concerned that somebody, one of my friends in my section has been hurt or killed. So I look around frantically and I can't see anything. So I carry on waiting. The dust cloud gets to the floor, hits the floor, disappears. And then I look down to where my legs should have been and they had 
both been completely ripped off from the knees down. Now, anyone that's been in a, in a traumatic incident or accident, like a car crash or, or a fall from a height, will know exactly what I mean when I say this, but it's a very surreal experience. It doesn't feel like it's real. You know, I remember sitting there looking at all this blood and, and fluid and, and claret coming out of my body, but not being in any pain. And I think my brain found that very difficult to process. And you kind of go into this like dream state, like you don't understand what it is that's happening, what's going on. And I probably felt that way for about two or three seconds. And I instantly started thinking about my team again. So I'd snapped out of it for some reason. And I started looking around. And this time when I looked over my right shoulder, I saw the guy in charge, Corporal Sean Helsby. Now we had been through training together. We'd known each other for six or seven years at this point. Um, I trusted him with my life implicitly. And as I looked at him and looked into his eyes, you know, he, he had no color in his face and his eyes were out here. He was clearly in shock. And so while I'm trying to process what it was I just looked at and then seeing the way he's looking, you know, all, all the pieces are starting to come together now and this surreal experience that I'm having is starting to feel a little bit more real. Now I still didn't quite understand what was going on and I went to look back at my legs, just to give my, my brain that last kind of signal that, you know, this is happening, you need to think about it. And as I got to about the three o'clock position, I saw my arm lying in the sand. Now it was still attached, but from my bicep down to my wrist, the entire thing had been torn open. All the bones had been shattered. My hand was still in pretty good order. And for some reason, I, I reached down and picked it up and just kind of held it in front of my face, looked at it for a little while, dropped it in the sand and just let out this huge scream. As I started, I fully realized the severity of the situation and what had happened. I knew we weren't under attack anymore. And I knew that I had stood on and detonated and improvised explosive device. Now the evacuation that followed was hectic, but perfect. You know, it sounds bizarre, but we're trained in those situations not to let emotions take over and not to run in to save your friends because you risk either hurting or killing yourself or further hurting or killing the casualty. And there were seven other devices scattered around this uh, area that I was in. The little shallow bowl that I was in, I've read, we were working with American Special Forces and I've read the report that they wrote when they cleared the area. This little shallow bowl was now 12 feet deep by 15 feet around. So I knew my evacuation was going to be extremely difficult, but with nothing to do, but just sit there and kind of observe, I, I just kind of started watching in between trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was watching everybody and everybody just did everything perfectly. Like we'll, we'll fuck this up nine times out of 10 when you're training it, but when it needed to be done, everybody just kicked into gear, like a well-oiled machine and, and they were in there. We had one guy straight away on the radio calling in a helicopter. We had a 19 year old on his belly with a bayonet checking the, the ground for other devices and marking a safe route either side of me. We had a guy coordinating all around the fence in case we were attacked with AK-47s and small arms. Everything happened perfectly. Now, next thing I know, this medic comes in to get me. I, I have no idea how he got into this huge crater. Um, I had my eyes closed at this point. He starts putting tourniquets on my legs and my arm. And one of the things that the medics do to keep you conscious, because they don't know how close you are to death, 
is they get you involved in your own evacuation. So he asked me to tighten up the tourniquet on my right arm, which I, I did. I, I just I gave a very feeble attempt just to keep him happy, to let him know that I was alive. Started doing his tourniquet up. He had sorted my legs out, got me to a position where he deemed me safe to move. And then he pulled out this stretcher, which not like the typical stretcher, you think the rigid one, it was like a, a bed sheet with handles on it. So he set that up, he hooked his hands under my armpits and he dragged me over to the stretcher. Now that was the first time I felt any pain. Uh, and the pain came out of my right leg. And the only way I can describe it is how I would imagine it would feel if you put a screwdriver under your kneecap and just started ratcheting down on it. So I asked him very politely to put me down while I looked down to where the pain came from. And coming out of my thigh was like a thin red piece of rope covered in sand and dust and dirt. So I followed it through the, the dirt and it went into my boot. And I have no idea why, but I kind of picked my boot up and I looked inside it and my foot was still in there. And so I guess the, the piece of the rope looking thing was, was a nerve or a tendon and it stretched when he pulled me with the weight of the foot and boot. So we had to pick that up and, and cradle it on my stomach while he put me on the stretcher. Now I closed my eyes again at this point and somehow he got me off this high feature. He got me into the back of a vehicle, like a trailer that was waiting at the bottom of this high feature. And then the guy jams the accelerator and we start motoring back towards where the helicopter was going to meet us. Now, now these are not tarmac roads. If you think we've got potholes in the UK, you need to see what an Afghan dirt track looks like. And we're flying along, I'm getting thrown around in the back and we start to hit the incline to go back into the front entrance of the camp. And because the ground is so loose and, and unstable, you have to drive quite aggressively uh, to get through the front entrance of the camp. And the driver knew this, he'd done it a million times. So he starts hitting the accelerator and he, he's banking from left to right. And when he hit this pothole and he was accelerating hard, the medic fell out the back. Right? which I thought was hilarious because I'm on morphine and I'm off my nut at this point. But then I started to go after him. Now as the, the bottom of my back hit the tailgate of the vehicle, a guy driving, and I'm assuming just out of instinct, swung around and reached out to grab me to hold me in and ended up grabbing the femur bone that was coming out of my right leg. Now he left the medic because that other group of eight men that we left with, they were at the bottom of the hill. They were heavily armed. The medic was safe. He made that decision very quickly, drove me through the camp to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I can remember is this Chinook helicopter landing, the sandstorm that's cr created from the propeller blades, the heat from the exhaust, and then the mechanical noise at the tailgate as it dropped. And that was when I blacked out and later on found out they had clinically classed me as, as dead. Wow. Mm. Yeah, pretty rough Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. What's amazing though, th th so this next part, right? I, I don't remember any of this. I was unconscious of this whole thing, but this is the amazing part that still, still to this day, I think if those people weren't there at that time, then I wouldn't be here now. But. Basically, we got thrown on the back of this helicopter. There, were, there was another guy injured in the blast and he had got shrapnel in his back and in his tricep. And the way they prioritize casualties 
in this situation if you is this, if you've got a guy who's dead and a guy that's dying as harsh as it sounds you ignore the dead guy and you put all your attention on the guy that's dying because you don't want two dead guys so they they felt me for a pulse and i didn't have one they couldn't get any intravenous lines into me because all my veins had collapsed because of the blood loss and when they put a mask on me it should have steamed up to show that i was breathing but it didn't so they shoved me in the corner and, and said this guy's gone we need to work on the other guy luckily one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go back and work on the other guy and they said that my eyes started to flood which to them meant that my heart was still beating so he alerted some of the other medics they came to me and they started to work on me now three days before this incident whoever is in charge of the the army medical world had given the green light for this new technique to be used where if you can't get intravenous lines under somebody's veins you can drill into their tibia or their fibula problem being i didn't have a tibia or fibula because they've been ripped off by the ied so these two medics charlie and milsey made some extremely courageous decisions and you've got to bear in mind we're on the back of a helicopter it's full of sand and dust it's going from left to right because people are trying to shoot it down from the ground they're now faced with this absolute mess of a body in front of them that I've never seen before and they've got no proven way to get fluids into me so they decided that because they didn't have a tibia or a fibula they would drill into my hip bone and see if they could get fluids in that way the first time failed because they said the skin was too loose so they tightened it up they went in through the front and the back put a line in and they said within three minutes i was awake and responsive again wow. and when they were asking me questions i wasn't babbling the answers i was coherently answering the questions that they were asking me so um they brought me back from the dead uh <laughs> within three minutes and, and they said the, the first thing i said was that my ass hurt which is apparently a side effect of mass amounts of morphine. So that made them cry through happiness because they knew that I was going to be okay. And they flew me back to a place called Camp Bastion, took me to the field hospital, which back at the tail end of 2007 was just like military tentage. There was no hardened accommodation back then. And the surgeons that were on call that day did an assessment of the damage to my three limbs and decided the only way that they were going to be to save my life is if they amputated both my legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow that's what they did patched me up sent me home where i got to selly oak hospital at around about four o'clock in the morning on christmas day wow mm. so there's a whole load of things i want to ask okay um right now in the world there is some not great things going on. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of people who get triggered on social media or who seem somewhat entitled or seem to get pissed off by the smallest thing. And you were told you wouldn't walk again and you're walking pretty bloody well when I walked yeah, in. Yeah. And so I guess I wanna say have you made peace with what happened? And do you think there's a lot of ungrateful people out there in the world that aren't grateful for things in life that they take for granted? So absolutely, I've made peace with it. I'm, I'm a very different part, not a very different, but I'm obviously a different person now to I was back then. And I made peace with it very early because I know that the three people 
who planted those devices no longer exist in the world. Within 24 hours, they found out who they were and they were taken care of. And was that important that, that they got taken care of for you? It was then, it's not now. If they were still alive now, I'd have no issues with it. But obviously back then I was younger, brasher, angry, and, and pissed off with, with what had happened. So that made me feel good at the time. And mm. um, right now, I'm a, like I say, I'm a very different person. Um, so I've absolutely made peace with it. In terms of, you know, people that take things for granted, it one of the, one of the biggest things for me in moving forward was was gratitude, and it was hard. It's, it's not like I just woke up one day, hugged the tree, and went, "I'm grateful for everything." It took a little bit of time and a little bit of of coaching and growing to get there. But I started looking around at, you know, I've got hundred thousand pound prosthetic legs on. I could be sat in a wheelchair. 30 years ago, I would have been. I would have been shoved in a corner. Everything would have been harder. I can drive myself, travel myself. I can work, earn, do whatever I did before, just slightly slower. So I'm always grateful for that. And I always try and tell people because people do take things for granted, right? But they don't always realize that they do. And so I try and tell them some of the things that I used to take for granted, which now I would really really appreciate it and it's, it's little things like walking barefoot through the grass and feeling the grass on your toes or being able to just run into the ocean with my kids and throw them up in the air and, and catch them and that kind of stuff it's not anything bigger than that you know and i think we all should take a bit of time every once in a while to just you know put the phone down step away from the news and, and spend some time thinking about what it is you have in your life that you can be grateful for and everybody on the planet could think of at least probably one thing that I could be grateful for. And if they're alive and they're breathing and they're thinking, then there's that. You know, that's something that we should all be grateful for. Mm. So I was feeling very grateful coming down here to meet you because um, we met on Clubhouse. That's mm -hmm. how we first got to know each other. Um, it's difficult to ask standard podcasty questions mm -hmm. when you're sitting here with someone who was basically dead and uh, is it right that you're the only triple amputee that survived i was the first right um, which made the whole recovery process a lot harder because no one had ever dealt with anyone with my level of injuries and i was actually told three and a half weeks after the incident by the the uk's leading professional in the field of amputations that I had no chance to be able to walk and he told me he never met anyone with just one leg missing above the knee that had any real success doing it because it was too difficult prosthetics were too painful and they took so much energy that most people just didn't bother and so I had that to contend with as well and we we gradually as I left hospital after six weeks went to rehab healed up got issued with the prosthetics we gradually started just chipping away at it, you know, 1% at a time. But I think where I was fortunate was that I already understood the power of having a mentor and I'd already been online. This is back when you needed a dongle to get on the, on the internet. <laughs> you basically do here as well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I found this guy in America called Cameron Clapp who had been hit by a train when he was 15. And he was a triple amputee, exactly the same as me, except his arm was slightly higher. And this guy was doing everything that my team back here were telling me wasn't achievable. And it's, they weren't doing it through malice, it was just lack of education and knowledge. And I was watching this guy on the internet all the time doing these incredible things with ease. And there was me, a 24-year-old 
you know, extremely fit Royal Marines Commando struggling to walk eight meters and, and being out of breath and, and tired and sweating all the time. This guy was just mobbing all over America, no wheelchair, driving cars, and I'm like, I want to be able to do that. And, you know, I think my team were trying to manage my expectations and not let me get too excited and, and set these goals too high and then not be able to achieve them and then have a, a negative consequence after. But once I saw what this guy could do, that, that was like, I was like a runaway train then. And I actually went AWOL from the military. I, I asked permission if I could go over and meet him and, and get him to train me. He'd already agreed to do this. We'd met uh, via Was email. that in the middle between the two stints you had? No, this was just uh, during my recovery. Right, um, yeah. I, I asked, I said, look, I found this guy, he's got injuries like me, he's doing what I want to do, can I go over and meet him? And yeah. I've already spoke to him and he, he's happy to train me. Uh, they said no. So I spent probably three weeks, you know, waking up at two, three in the morning, just angry and confused and overwhelmed, thinking, what, what do I do? Do I go and risk getting in trouble or do I do what I'm told? Because you're in the military, you know, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir. I've got to do what I'm told. In the end, after a conversation with my wife at about three o'clock in the morning, we, we both kind of thought, you know, in 10 years, I'm not going to be in the military. And if I don't go now, I'm going to regret it. So I'll go, take the bollocking when I get back, but at least my life will be better. So I literally jumped on a plane on the 9th of June 2009, flew to America to meet Cameron and his team. I went through an intense three-week boot camp, which I'll honestly compare to Royal Marines training. Wow. Mentally and physically, I was this close to breaking at, by the end of it. But they pushed me over the line, came back, and that was the last time I ever used a wheelchair because of what they had taught me. I, I basically took seven years of their successes and failures and squeezed them down into a three-week boot camp. Um, I never used a wheelchair since, thanks to that help. Wow, mm. power of a mentor. Absolutely. Someone who's been there before. Mm -hmm. You said that you're a very different person mm -hmm. since you know, your knee hit the IOD. Mm -hmm. How are you different? How were you before and how are you now? I think some of it is just through that natural process we all go through. We, we grow, we have children. Well, you don't, we don't all go through what you went through. No, no, but I mean, as humans, we all change as we get older. We, we get more mature sometimes. <laughs> we have kids and, you know, I think some of us stop taking risks and jumping out of planes and all that crazy stuff. But then I think going through this actually, because I was fortunate enough to have great people around me and, and I fell into self-development in the early days and was setting goals really, really from day one, that forced me to grow as, as an individual on another level. And it just made me look at the world differently. And how? Gratitude was one of the main things. You know, and there were two times throughout my entire recovery, right to the day, when I, I would have what I called bad days. You know, the first was when the doctor told me never walk again. And then about a week after that, when I left hospital in a wheelchair to go to the flat where my family was staying, I couldn't get through any of the doors because I had an extra wide wheelchair. And then I went past a full length mirror for the first time and saw my entire body. And I, I'd gone from six foot two, 16 stone to eight stone 11, and I'm like four foot three without prosthetics. Spent the entire night crying with my wife, just telling her I wanted to kill myself. Woke up the next day, it's, it's amazing how good you feel after a good purge, you let it all out and then you, you, I got up the next day ready to crack on. And from that day, 
it's just been constant forward progress in, in all areas of my life. So you haven't had a bad, had a bad day since? Not to do with this, just no. the normal everyday stuff, you know, bills and work and career and kids and actually all the and usual do, stuff. Do they bother you as much now from before or not so much? No, because again, I look at things differently now. Like whenever there's something bad that happens in my life, like when I reflect on this, I always try and pull out what's good about the situation. Do you know what I mean? Like when we, when we started going into lockdowns, you know, everyone's going losing their mind because of you know you're stuck in your house you can't do this you can't do that well and I, and I went through that too I'm not saying not look at everything with rose tinted glasses on everything's great but I just thought well I've got more time to spend with my kids now I can develop some new habits and routines now I can get to work on all the things that I procrastinate on because life's too busy when I'm driving everyone working and so I just looked at what was good about that and I, and I do it in all the other areas as well. You know, anytime I come against something that sucks, I think, okay, what's good about this? What can we pull from this? How can we grow from this? Were you with your wife before, or did you meet your wife after? Before. Fuck, so how did that go, and how did you move through that challenge with your wife? It, it's funny, because I think she's very much like me. So we met, I took a year out of the Marines from 2006 to 2007, I was working as a nightclub doorman. And she had come down from Surrey to Plymouth to finish a degree. And we met at this nightclub. We were only been together for about 11 months before I rejoined and redeployed. And so she had just finished university, she had a degree. All of her family were up around London. She had every reason to go, it's been fun, but I'm 21, I've got a life, good luck with yours. But she didn't, she stuck around. And I don't think I can tell you why. Um, she, she decided to stick it out. And we've just kind of grown together as a team ever since then. It's so easy. I think we just, we give each other the space to be ourselves. And then we come together to support each other. And neither of us really get bothered with all the niff-naff and bullshit in the world. We just focus on what we think is important and just move forward as, as a team. And I think that's kind of the key is you got to give each other your own space to do your own thing, but then do a lot of it together as well. Was it hard for her going through it? Absolutely. You know, even from day one, like when they got the call from the military, they're like, oh, Mark's lost his foot. You know, this is Christmas Eve. She's wrapping Christmas presents and, and everyone's rushing to Birmingham now to the hospital. And you didn't just lose your foot either. This is what I mean. Then she gets another phone call. Oh, actually, it's a leg. She gets close to the hospital. Uh, I think it's two legs. She gets in there. Oh, I'm sorry, it's three limbs. So she's on this roller coaster of emotions, like Baron and Rubber from London to Birmingham to try and see what kind of state I'm in. She said when she got there, because I was only visible from the chest up, she said I just looked normal, like just like I was taking a nap, covered in dirt and dust and stuff. Um, but like, like from day one, it was immensely hard for her. And then, you know, like I said, there was only two times that I really struggled, that, that time in hospital and the time I spent all night crying with her. She struggled with that. And then I think we both just kind of were on the same wavelength of, right, let's just see what we can do with this. And, and we'll move forward. And we had great support from the Royal Marines and the military and friends and family. So we had a good system in place to help us. And then we just we came up against these challenges together and just as a team knocked through and moved on to the next one. Was there like a conversation you had, which is like, what you're gonna do about this situation? Or was it just unspoken and you just cracked on with life? There, there was a little bit of a conversation, 
but then we also just cracked on with life and then all these these cool things started what, happening. What was said in that conversation, can you remember? About what, just cracking on with life? Yeah, about what you're gonna do. I mean, did you, did, for example, did you say to her, look, if you don't wanna hang around, fine, or were there oh, yeah. any? Yeah, absolutely, I gave her numerous times to walk away and every time she's like, nope. And it wasn't because I was, you know, I didn't really have anything to offer her. I was 24 years old. Well, you've got how many kids now? Three. So you, yeah, you yeah, still, yeah. still have something yeah. to offer. Yes. Um, but obviously back then, you know, like I said, she'd finished university, she had a degree, she's 21, I'm 24, three limbs missing, career's obviously over, no idea I was gonna earn an income or any of that kind of stuff. I had nothing really to offer her. So she could have walked away a million times and I gave her every opportunity to, but she stuck around and she didn't want to. Um, and neither of us knew what the future would have. You just kind of looked at your situation back then and went, okay, I can't work, I can't earn, I've got three limbs missing, what are we gonna do? And then just this series of events happened after I came back from America. Things looked different because I had independence and I thought, okay, maybe I can work and, and do this and that and the other. I could drive at that point. So I could go out and I'm independent. That meant she didn't have to be there doing everything for me. So she could have a job, a career and a life outside of looking after me. And then I was, you know, a series of very fortunate events happened where, you know, I, I decided to leave the Marines because I knew I couldn't get promoted or carry on my career. I did that in July 2010, and I was just about to leave the UK to go and run across America. We were doing a, an event from New York to LA, and I got a phone call from a retired brigadier who was the chief executive of the Royal Marines, what is now the Royal Marines charity, and he offered me a job. And I said, I'd love a job, sir. What do you want me to do? He said, I've got no idea. We'll make something up, though. I <laughs> just hung the phone up. And I went and ran across America, came back, and had this job. And what was the job doing? It's evolved over the years, but back in 2010, it was uh, basically a, a welfare assistant helping other injured Royal Marines and their families from previous conflicts. And then it evolved into a fundraising, I think helped raise somewhere in the region of 4 million for wow. that organization over 10 years. I used to give presentations to all the recruits when they, when they got to week 28 of 30, which I found quite difficult and also comical because you got to imagine for 10 years, we're in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when these guys are getting to week 28 of their training out of 30, they know within a couple of months they're gonna be deployed. And so they've got a guy sitting in front of them giving them a presentation with three limbs missing, who's been deployed. And Shit. it was on the same day. So when they're on week 28, the troop in front of them on week 30 were on what we call their pass and out parade, where all their families come and watch them do the marching and get their green beret. So I used to hide behind buildings because all these families were there and they're all happy because their sons are getting a green beret. And I was very conscious that they didn't want to see me walking around the camp with two prosthetic legs. So I'd hide behind the trees and the buildings. And when there was a space, I'd run over to the, the presentation suites, give the lecture, and then and go home. And you know, I was doing that for a long time. I think we recruited about 5,000 of them into the charity and the association. Um, and just had all sorts of, of fun doing that. You know, I did it for 10 years and it was great because I never wanted to leave and I didn't want to lose that connection. And that, why, why did you leave? No, I never wanted to leave the military. Right. And I, and I had to because of my injuries, but that job, because it was based in where we do our training and I'm around it all the time, I never felt like I had left. Mm. So really, you know, I did 10 years service in the Marines, 10 years for the charity. In that 10 years for the charity, I never felt like I had actually left. I felt like I was still mm. serving around the lads, living that kind of life, yeah. which I felt I needed, mm. you know, I needed. Maybe it wouldn't have took me 10 years to transition out, 
but it was a, an easier way for me to get out there and then become a full-on civilian. Mm. Yeah. And then what did you, you left after 10 years? What made you leave and what did you plan to do? My life kind of works in like 10 year blocks. Like I said, I did 10 years in the Marines, 10 years at the charity. Just kind of felt I needed to do something different. And, you know, my, my gut was telling me you could achieve more and be more and give more outside of this environment. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I literally was, I, I called him up just before Christmas and I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be a shock to you, but I want to put him on notice to leave. And, and they asked, I said, what are you going to do? I'm, no idea. I don't know. I just have a gut feeling that there's something out there that I can do and that's going to make me even happier and, and better and, and challenge me more. So I put my notice in to leave February 2020. And funnily enough, November, uh, was it November 2020? No, maybe November 2019, the year before I left anyway. The charity that I'm now a trustee for had just formed. And so I thought, right, when I leave this job, I'm going to do something to raise a bit of awareness for them and get some eyeballs on the website to help promote their mission. So I got my youngest daughter, Evelyn. We did a Facebook Live and she was going to shave my beard off and we are going to try and raise a thousand pounds in like five or six weeks. And my lit, all, all my kids are, are quite sassy, but the little one, she's super cute and sassy. Her camera doesn't phase her. So she shaved my beard off. And then she gave me what, what in the military we call a Robocop which is basically you shave your hair from here forward, like when Robocop takes his mask off Ooh. and you just leave the back lot. <laughs> so I'm doing a Facebook Live looking ridiculous, like with bits of hair everywhere. And we, she finished it off in the end and we did the thousand pound in like 22 hours. So my coach, uh, my trainer, wow. Ben, who's also a former Royal Marine, was a physical training instructor, said, look, while people are in lockdown, you know, why don't we go with this momentum? There's a lot of eyeballs right now on, on the internet, on Facebook and everything. We'll do some fundraisers to raise money for the charity. So I dusted off my running prosthetics and, and I, I detest running. Like even when I had legs, I hated it. I thought it was the, the good thing about losing them. I thought no one's gonna ever ask me to run again, but then someone invented these blades. So we dusted them off and we went to this park but I had a, a 1.2 kilometer circular track on it. And I had committed to doing this 5K and, and I said on the live stream through my Just Given page, when I get to 5,000 pounds, I'll run 5,000 meters. And in the first training run, we got 2K in and I was tired and, and out of breath and I lost concentration and I hit the deck, did like the front splits, took a huge chunk out of the concrete and we called it all on camera. And that video has got like 41 million views on it now. Wow. But it went crazy and the BBC got involved and everything. So they rang up and asked to do an interview about it. So I went to my, my home office, which was in my garage, did this interview on a Saturday morning. And by the time I'd walked from my garage to my front room, there was 62 grand in the key. Wow. And they rang me straight back and went, do you want to come on Sunday? I'm like, absolutely. Thinking that it's not going to have anywhere near the same effect because Sunday morning people would be sleeping, they're not watching the telly. It's another 60 odd grand to come in. So on one level, I'm elated thinking, we've got like 120 odd grand here. But then I was like, well, now I've got to do the run because I said when I have to get the 5,000 pounds, I'll do the 5,000 meters. So we literally completely, what we call cuffed it, just did it on, on a wing, went down, ran this 5,000 meter run. The BBC live streamed it, took us to about 200 grand. And then Ben said, let's do a swim. And then he, same thing again. Then he went to do a 99.9 mile bike ride because the charity had then started working with the emergency services. So I thought 999 was kind of cool. 
Then he wanted to do another event, which was a 24-hour fitness event to finish the year off. And all in all, I think we're just touching on like 600 grand now. So I came out with zero idea what I was going to do, no plan, nothing. I was just going to take a bit of downtime. And then this whole thing happened, which took up my entire year last year, but was phenomenal because it gave me a focus and a purpose and a direction when I could have potentially lost it. And, you know, it's, that money's gone to help a lot of cool people, um, people that are struggling, people that need help. And so, you know, that's, that's a huge part of my life. It's what I do now. Um, 40 to 50% of my time is helping to raise awareness and raise funds for that charity. And on that note, um, tell us about when you met Prince Harry. Which time? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first time, of course. <laughs> so the first time was actually training for Afghanistan. I, I, the big truck that we were using, had the battery had died, and they call them slave leads, but they're basically jump cables for military vehicles. So I went to the back of this vehicle, because we were training with the army, opened the back door and said, like, do you mind if I borrow your slave lead? And he was sat in this vehicle and I'm like, ah, I can't be him. So I walked back with this, this huge cable, put it on my shoulders, walked back, jump started this vehicle and I'm lads, I'm pretty sure Prince Harry's over in that car over there. They're like, no, he's not. And then this crowd started forming. And I'm like, that's a bit weird, isn't it? So they all went over and, and it was, he was in there training. Then after that, I got injured. One of the cool things going through rehab was we would always get invited into London to red carpet premieres and all these events into the palace and castle. And so we kept on meeting up at all these events and, and stuff over the years. Then he came to Plymouth a couple of times and we would go off in a, in a room like this. He was like, got rid of the security and we just had like bloke chats. And then in 2017, I decided to try for the Invictus Games, which was his thing that he had started two years previous and was fortunate enough to get selected for the UK team, went out and competed in Canada the first year in Australia, the second year, and you know, we met a lot of times on there too. So yeah, we've, we've done a lot of stuff together over the years. Um, it's been a big part of the journey. And he's, uh, I know that like the media now, they really give him a hard time, but he's one of the nicest people you could ever meet in your life. And, and it kind of annoys me because for like 10, 11 odd years, you couldn't say a bad word about it. Like everything was amazing. And then all of a sudden, the opposite. And it really annoys me, do you know what I mean? Because he's Ooh. actually a really genuine good bloke. And like I said, I've sat in a room smaller than this with, with him, with no security, no cameras, no mics, nothing, one-on-one, -on -one, and he is just one of the greatest people I've ever met. What do are, what are the media or people misunderstand about him then? I don't think they, so much misunderstand anything. They just write what they want to write, don't they, to sell papers, you know, and mm. maybe not thinking about the effect that that's having on, you know, not just him, but there's, there's ripple effects of that in there. And I, I haven't seen him for a good number of years since this has started happening to have that conversation. But I imagine no matter how thick your skin is, it can be, I mean, you talk about haters all the time, mm. you know what I mean? And embracing the haters, hopefully that the mindset that he has. But yeah. I imagine that sometimes it's not always like that. You know, when you're at home on your own, you know, and with the wife and the kids, sometimes it might it creep in and, you know, affect your mental health a little bit. And um, when do you think it changed for Harry? Was there a particular moment in his life where, where that all changed? I think when he decided to go to America, maybe. Yeah, that was probably the time. But, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, haven't you? you yeah. got to do what's best for your family, for yourself, for, for many different things. Mm. And what do you think about his 
him and Megan and his relationship with Megan because that's caused some ripples, hasn't it? Yeah, but people don't know, do they? They just they just make assumptions and, and judgments based on what they see or what they think they see. Mm. No one knows what really goes on behind closed doors, you know. No, no one... but they went on Oprah though, didn't they? So okay, you they did see that. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about that? I thought it was a good interview. Did you? Yeah, I thought it was all right. What was good about it? I mean, for me personally, I would have been bricking it being on Oprah in front of everyone's in lockdown. You got hundreds of millions of people watching this and. You know, maybe if you say one thing wrong, and that's what everyone's going to jump on. So I'd have been extremely nervous if it was me. But I think they did a good job of it. Um, I think they got their, their points across. It's, it's obviously a, there's, there's a huge load that goes on behind the scenes. Do you know what I mean? That maybe the public will never know about, um, never hear about. Yeah. I mean, Piers Morgan came out and said that Meghan Markle basically lied all the way through it. What, what do you oh, think really? of that? Yeah. I don't know. I don't really watch Piers Morgan. Stuff. Um, he's a bit polarised, isn't he? But um, you know, he again, you know, he's he got to do that, add that shock factor, so people watch and give him the views and the, and the ratings. And I don't know. He might be. He might genuinely believe that. He might have just said it for clout. I don't know. Mm. But you know, I, I've met the both of them on on numerous occasions, and the time that I've spent with them, I've really enjoyed, and I I genuinely believe that they are who they say they are. And what do you think the masses or the mainstream media misunderstand about Harry and Meghan then? What do they not know? You've been in a room with them. What do they not know about them? You've got, you got to kind of look at some of the history, you know, like what happened with Princess Diana growing up. And, you know, no one's going to know what it's like to grow up in that environment. From the minute you're born, you're in the public eye. You're on with cameras and you're going to events and you're dealing with stuff that that's normal people have to deal with. And maybe you get to a point where you do just want a normal life. You know what I mean? And I think you should be given that opportunity. You know, we're human beings at the end of the day. We've got to live and do what makes us happy. And that seems like what it is that they've done. Mm. Aren't you a bit of an Invictus Games legend? <laughs> um, I like to think so. <laughs> when I'm sat on my own. <laughs> yeah, so that thing, when I, after I was injured, Sport was not my focus. You know, before I was injured, I used to compete as an amateur kickboxer in Muay Thai and boxing. I never did high jump, long jump, swimming, or any of that kind of stuff. And it used to irritate me a little bit that I used to meet these people for the first time, and they would shake your hand, introduce themselves, and then say, "So when are you going for the Paralympics?" Like it was a prerequisite of being disabled. And I'm like, "I'm not. I've got no interest in sport. I'm just gonna. I want to learn to walk. I want to start a new career and, and do other things." But when I was sat down mapping out uh, 2017, at Christmas 2016, setting all my goals, I realized that 2017 was my 10 year anniversary of being injured and of life. So I thought I'd do something I haven't done before. Applied for the games, not thinking that I was gonna make it. Managed to make the team. Went out there um, in this world that I had not been a part of before. It was all new and, and, and grand and big and quite overwhelming to me. But I took it very seriously because my goal was to go out there. This is what I envisioned in my head. I'll go out there because I'm young, fit, and I'm a Royal Marine. I'll destroy everybody, drop the mic, walk away with loads of gold medals, which is really, really stupid and arrogant because I, I just thought, I thought adaptive sports were very much based around sympathy and, and pity. They're not, they are hard. <laughs> so I went out that first year with two silvers, two bronzes. I managed to pick up the Jaguar Land Rover Award for the best athlete of the games. Did they give you a car? No, I did try what? changing it. I tried changing it Come for a Ranger, on. but they weren't, they weren't having none of it. 
Um, Shame on you, Jaguar Land Rover. <laughs> There's still a chance uh, to yeah. give. Would you take a car now if they absolutely, offered it? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, what do you drive, by the way, just randomly? Well, I've just sold my GTR. I have one. Yeah, I sold it. Do you know it. I had one years ago? I years do back. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I've yeah, got GTR. I didn't know that. GTR R8 M3. I've had a Range Rover. I love cars, bikes, boats, anything. Yeah. That's... What, what's your favourite out of the ones you've had? The GTR. Oh, the GTR. Can't even, can't even put that in the same bracket as an R8. I didn't like the R8. No. No, I thought it was uncomfortable. It was hard to drive. It used to annoy me when I come out the cinema and you've got like 14 kids sat on it taking pictures and scratching it. It used to stress me out. The GTR though, you could drive that every day and it was comfortable mm. and it wasn't too loud. I loved that car. Yeah. Um, but you, you've sold it. Yeah. Because it cost 1,800 quid to get it serviced and then we'll teed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fine. It flew through and I'm like, if, this, if there's something wrong with us next year. How, what, what age was it? 2009. Yeah, that's the thing, because they're getting quite old now, aren't they? Mm. I've got mine in 07. Do you know they're talking now about bringing the new model out? Okay. I'm, I'm really? on my list. Yeah, I'm you are, you yeah. Were you surprised when you got your MBE? Yeah, because it's, it's very strange, because what I got it for was work with the Royal Marines and within the veteran community, which to me is just what I do anyway and what I love. And so to be rewarded for it felt a little bit strange in the beginning because I'm like, I mean, you get these things for going above and beyond and I didn't feel like I ever did because I was just working hard doing what I loved and working with people that I love to be around. But obviously I was very grateful, but it, it took me a little bit of time to accept it and, and some conversations with some people. To, what, why? What, did it, what didn't feel right about it then? Well, I just didn't feel I deserved it for doing things. You know, I didn't feel like I was doing anything special because I'm just doing it. The work that I was doing was helping me as much as it was helping other people. I felt useful again and I was providing... Is that not the secret to life though? Yeah. Adding value to others while, you know, getting benefit yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Which is, I think, why it felt a little bit strange to be rewarded for that. Because I was already being rewarded because I was doing work I loved, helping people, which was then helping me. So I'd already won. So then to get this extra... Was it a surprise as in you got the letter or we tipped off first? No, no, it just it turned up at the house one day with the, the seal on. Oh, when you, you know? saw it, did you immediately know? I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was going to the tower for something. <laughs> I'd done something wrong. But yeah, I opened it up and read it. And it again, another surreal experience. I think it was actually during a lockdown that it came. Yeah. Um, yeah, but obviously, once it did sink in and, and I kind of was more comfortable with it, you know, then you can enjoy it then. But it was 2020 and I couldn't go and get it for another just over a year, I think, because of the, the COVID protocols. Wow. Mm. So I had to wait a while. Mm. And how was it receiving it? It was, it was great and it was, it was quite funny at the same time because they, what they do is they, we went to Windsor Castle and they put you in groups of like MBE, OBE, CBE, KBE. It's out in John was there getting, I think, his second knighthood. But all these groups have to walk past us to go into the room to get theirs. And... There's a lot of high-ranking military officials and civilian officials that get knighted all the time. And they were walking past and some of them, all right, Mark, all right, Mark, <laughs> in this room that I'd met over the years. And all these people are looking at me like, who is this guy? All the, he knows all these people getting knighthoods. And it's just me and Becky sat there like this in this room with everyone else. But it was just all these people that I'd worked with or met through charity or through the military or whatever I was doing over the years who were going in and getting these, these top honors. Mm. So it was, kind of, it was kind of funny, but it was a really good day. Um, me and Becky, I think within about eight minutes, 
since we left Windsor Castle, we were at a McDonald's drive-through, just doing what we do, <laughs> <laughs> just shoving burgers down our face. She got on a train, came back to Plymouth, went back to work because my wife works with veterans as well. I drove into London because I was working, um, and then it probably was about three days after that that we had time to just and and soak it all up. And did you celebrate it? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Do you have a drink? Do you like a drink every now and again? Uh, but I do like pizza. Right. So we celebrate yeah. it with a pizza and a movie, everyone at the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Do you ever get, and you could, I'd like you to be honest about this, I'm sure you would be, but um, do you ever get bored, pissed off, frustrated, or any emotion about having to tell the same story over and over? Because obviously you're here on my show, you, you're on my friend Matt Fidesz's mutual friend podcast just shout out to matt fides and jay alderton because they both said yeah. literally on the same day we already knew each other i don't know why it didn't occur to me for us to hook up in this environment just get busy with life don't you and yeah. and they both said look hook up with mark Wilmot. i'm like, i know mark mm. you know like we're mates you know, yeah. um so yeah big, a big shout out to them but mm. yeah telling the same story over and over how do you feel about that so i've never struggled with it I've been lucky enough, I've travelled the world, Singapore, Germany, port everywhere, and, and told this story on stage with the old PowerPoint presentation. I've got some quite gory pictures of me on the operating table in Afghanistan getting operated on. So I've had... Do you share those? Oh, yeah. yeah can I, we put them on the YouTube? If you want, I can send them to you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to sound like, oh, that'll be a viral picture. But it will. Yeah. I've, I've had seven people pass out on me, like faint. The proudest I have is the one that was sat down. Because normally if you stood up and it's a hot in a room and you're uncomfortable, I get that. But one guy was sat down, just fell forward and headbutted the guy in front. And I've had three people just uncontrollably crying when you get to that point, because they see the graphic images and it kind of brings it all And you show them at your talks. Yeah, well, I used to. And this is what, so what you're saying about, do I get bored of it? I, I got bored of that format. And I actually got an, an agent last year after 10 years of going backwards and forwards with doing that. And now we've developed more of a, a different style. So it's almost like this. We do a, I, I get interviewed, yeah. do a Q&A, then I open up to the audience. And that I think provides a lot more value because it's not just me doing this on a stage with 10 minutes of Q&A at the end. It's interactive and I'm talking with audiences and almost like an evening with type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that has reinvigorated my, my passion for it. Yeah. I, I was getting a little bit bored of it. But it's never it's never bothered me reliving it. Like I don't I don't freak out and go home and cry at night about it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's actually quite therapeutic and cathartic to to talk about it. Mm. So imagine we started again, and we weren't allowed to. We weren't going to talk about what happened and your journey from Christmas Eve two thousand seven. What kind of stuff do you like talking about? If you were interviewing yourself and we were just having a chat, but we weren't allowed to go there. What would you talk about? Probably, if you're just talking about things that I enjoy, we'd probably talk about the UFC, working out, and self-development, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I guess if, if I was sat here as an able-bodied person, living exactly the way I am now, I'd probably like to talk more about the things I've done since being injured. Yeah. You know, because... So let's go there in a minute. Okay. But let's let's do a bit of that. Um, I'm old school. I, I, I had a couple of brown belts, so nowhere near the level of you and my friend Matt. But I loved UFC. Mm. Who's your favourite UFC fighter ever? Ever? Yeah. I'm going to be a bit boring here and just say Conor McGregor. Yeah. Just because of... But he's not the best fighter. No, not the best fighter. But 
as a as a person, I don't agree with everything that he's done. He, he's done some pretty shady stuff, but what's he done that's shady? Uh, punching that old man in the pub and you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Stuff I don't really agree with. Throwing yeah. the dolly at the bus and smashing the window and so. And I, I get do you it. think that's real or do you think that's part of the show? I, I think some. You of think it's real. real? I think some's real and some of it's part of the show. He's brought great attention to the sport, right. hasn't he, of UFC? And what he's done as an individual. As a businessman, it is phenomenal. Yeah. Ridiculous. Um, like you say, as a fighter, not the best there is. So who do you think, who's your, who's your favorite fighter to watch? I, I prefer the old school ones, when they so used to I. really go at it, like the Chuck Liddell's, Tito Ortiz. Chuck and Randy's fights. Yeah, and um, Ken Shamrock, yeah. the Gracies, back when they really started it. Do you remember Andre Arlovsky? Yeah. He's my favorite, yeah. ever. Yeah, I've seen him in a couple of movies, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then that, I think that, timed as when he started to go down a bit. He just looked like a fighter. Though. He looked like an animal. Yeah, just, yeah. But he, he could like... but he could move. Yeah. And a lot of the heavyweights can't move and he could really move. Mm. But I love the way it's, it's changed now where they were all big, muscly, yeah. hard bloke. Now you've got guys that are, you know, like Demetrius Johnson, they were tiny people yeah. that are just phenomenally talented. Do you think there's too many though? Too many fighters now, too many events, too many shows. Or am I just old school, old bastard, like the old I think, days? I mean, the good thing is there's a little bit for everyone. I think it's so popular now. I went to the UFC when it came back to London a couple of weeks ago, and I'm there at the second show in July, and the place is rammed. And it literally came out of the old 2 and as we were leaving, they had the Cage Warriors event next door. Yeah. It's that popular. Yeah. And, it's, and it's different levels. for, for the, I'm, I'm what they call a casual. I don't know the stats and the yeah. history completely. I just enjoy but watching Apparently, I was, can't remember who I was talking to. It was some massive in sports promotion. It might have been Barry Hearn. He said the casual fans, they're the big ones you go for. Oh, is they're, it? Yeah, they're the ones you need because obviously they're the masses. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But uh, I just, I enjoy watching it. We've been talking since... so long, the batteries have died on the oh, lights. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I appreciate it now on another level. Because I started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu about four and a half, five years ago. Mm. And when I used to watch it, and they used to go to the ground, I almost used to switch off. Yeah. And I was like, this is boring, what are they doing? But now I understand what they're doing, it's a lot more exciting for me. Mm. So yeah, I, I just enjoy watching it, following it, going to the events, um, keeping up with the guys' social media. Because yeah. it's interesting seeing as well with social media, how they are outside of the ring as well, in the octagon, yeah. what they get up to. What do you think about people like Jake Paul and Logan Paul getting involved in boxing and fighting? Mm, I think they're very smart on a business level. I mean, but, you know, saying that, you can't deny some of the stuff that they've done, you know, like the fights that, that Jake Paul's had. I, you know, I used to fight as, a, as an amateur and I didn't have anywhere near the eyeballs on me that he did, but I always remember that preparation phase of the training. I love the training. But then that week running up to it, he just full of anxiety and stress and then stepping on the scales to weigh in and then getting your hands wrapped backstage and, you know, listening to the crowd as, you know, I wonder if the guy before me will get knocked out and you've got to get ready quicker and it's just a massive ball of stress and I could never understand how anybody could do it for so long as a career because it's just awful. Like, for me, like, the process of it. So to, you know, put yourself through that and to then go... And to be, you know, have the courage to step and go on a fight, that guy who's an ex-UFC champion, this guy here. I know these guys are past their prime, but they're still fighters mm. at, at heart and they know what they're doing and it's dangerous. Mm. So I think they've been pretty smart in what they've done. Mm. 
You said you also like talking about personal development. Mm. So what would you say is your greatest lesson in personal development is? Anything around mindset, like looking at things differently and just taking a breath, taking a step back, like we talked about earlier. You know, you find a bad situation, you just take the time to look at it holistically and pick the good bits out of it, concentrate on them and, and focus on that area. But you just, you find, I think I find something new in everything I listen to. So I listen, like I said, I was driving up here listening to your Zoom call about social media. And then I'll go home and I'm listening to Tony Robbins' new book, Life Force, about health and mm. all this stuff. I've listened to all of his stuff, Gary Vaynerchuk, all, all these people. You pick something different up from everyone. And I think I adopt the old Bruce Lee adage is, you know, take what's useful, discard what's not, make it uniquely your own. Mm. And I, I just, I geek out on it now. I just love it. And, and it, I wish more people would do it instead of wasting their time watching like Love Island. I wish they'd spend an hour reading or consuming some decent content. What was it you said about Love Island before we went <laughs> before we went live? So I went on Twitter this morning and an advert popped up. So I hit the three little dots and hit block because I just don't- I'm Oh, what, a, an advert for Love Island came up? Yeah, so I just blocked it because I'm not a lot of fan of that. What don't you like about Love Island? Well, and here's the thing, I've never watched it. Ah. But, I, but I've, I've heard about it and I don't know, I just, I just struggle. I've got young kids myself and I know this is very judgmental, I'm going to say, but I want them to grow up looking up to people that have really pushed boundaries in their lives and achieved great things. And there's examples all over the place in music, TV, film, business, whatever it is. And I see this generation of young people looking up to like reality TV stars and, and wanting to be them. And I'm like, well, that's not really a strategy, I don't think. You know, and I don't really want my kids growing up looking at these people like that's what I want to be like that's what I aspire to be how do you um deal with how much media you expose your kids to because I think a lot of parents I speak to they're concerned about what they expose their kids to on social media but also social media is the greatest opportunity mm. to put your eye out to the world to connect with people all over the world and see different cultures you know, to build, get involved in communities mm. that you're really into, build an amazing business. Mm -hmm. Where do you sit with that? So, in terms of, you know, I think every parent's fear is the content that's available on the internet. And so, I, I wouldn't say I restrict it, you know, the, the, the extreme end of it, obviously, my, my kids don't go near that kind of stuff, but I don't shield them from it either. You know, it's full of foul language and you know, bits and pieces, but you can shield them from it to a degree. But I mean, that's the way the world is. They're gonna walk down the street and hear someone saying, foul, you know, spitting out swear words or whatever it is they're doing. So they, they use TikTok, YouTube, you know, they see bits and pieces that most people <coughs> wouldn't say is appropriate for their age, but we always monitor it. You know, and make sure that it's not nothing too bad, and and if it is, then we talk about it. Mm. You know, and we have a conversation. We've got some quick fire questions. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah. Get your water out for this. Right, <laughs> you haven't touched it yet. Um. So ideally, thirty seconds or less. But if any you want to go into, go into them. Um. Ant Middleton and Ali Ollerton do the show SAS. Who dares wins? What do you think of that show? And is it really like real life? I like the show. It's nothing like Special Forces Selection. 
It's what's, a reality TV show. So what's different about it? You don't sit around drinking cups of tea, having conversations with your friends after you finish a task. You're constantly out there. These are the best in the world, UK Special Forces. They are, getting, they are constantly on it all the time. They're not sitting around chatting in a hut. And, you know, it's for TV. And I understand that. You know, it's a great show. I actually was going to go to South Korea last year to do be an instructor on their version of it, um, which is what actually led me to get an agent because they binned me two days before so to fly out. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great. Yeah, I think it opens the world, the world's mind up a little bit. Mm. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Going to Afghanistan. <laughs> um, was that was that the stupidest question I've ever asked? No, no, no. Um, I mean, obviously, that's a risk. I did Iraq when I was 19. That was a risk. But, I mean, leaving, leaving my job's a risk. I, I was just gave up my job. I've got a family to support. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'll figure it out. It turned out that it worked out all right because I went with my gut and it's doing me all right so far. What's the best advice you ever received? Don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> um, God, I don't know. Um, and this is, this is more of a physical thing. Well, it's a mental thing too. And it relates, I guess, this is when I was going through Royal Marines training and you do this extreme stuff where you're constantly fighting with that voice in your head and it's telling you when you're in pain, you know, it's time to quit, you can't do it, it's too hard. Someone told me, one of the instructors, that when that voice kicks in, your body is physically only about 40% done. You've got another 60% in the tank. You just have to figure this bit out and then you can push forward and go on and do incredible things. And that got me through Royal Marines training. That got me through this. That got me through the Invictus Games training. It gets me through a lot of stuff. Wow. Do you have a 30 second or less trick for practicing mental strength? I don't, but I, not one that I use, but I do know of a few. Like, when, like you said here, you know, you've got 30 seconds to answer this question. You just go where you gut on, on some of these things. And, you know, if you're faced with two decisions, go with your gut initially, which one within the first 30 seconds feels right. Okay, let's go with that one. You know, I've read through personal development, a lot of people that do this in different scenarios. It's not something that I do personally. It may be something that I incorporate later, but at the minute, not right now. Now, I want to take us through what you're doing. Because we've gone through the journey of what happened. You say 10 year segments of your life. Yep. So let's go through the next 10 years. What are you working on? What's the next 10 years going to be? What are you excited about? How are you going to earn a load of money mm -hmm. to buy the new GTRs? <laughs> or your Lambo. Yeah, my Lambo. <laughs> you know, the price is high at the moment. Is it? Yeah. Um, I've, again, I'm very fortunate, I think, that this happened to me in this day and age because there are so many opportunities that came with it. So... You know, during lockdown, I ended up as a consultant with Amazon for a guy that was playing a triple amputee in a new series they've got. Like getting paid, I don't even know what I was doing, just showing the guy how to move and, and walk. And so I kind of, and you know, The Witcher. Mm. Uh, so I was an extra on the series two of that. Wait, I love that show. Yeah, when they had that you. big battle at the end of the first season and everyone gets blown up with magic. And so I was a, like a casualty in that. Right. So you've got all these opportunities there. Um, but going forward, I'm hopefully just about to secure a deal on my second book. I haven't written as many as you. <laughs> this is my second one. We don't compare. No, no. <laughs> uh, I've got a movie in the works. So your second book's going to be called, go on, give us a tease. Can so, you tell us? 
The the working title is is No Limits. The first one's Man Down, which is very much my military life. This is going to be from when I came back from America, so like the rise back up. Uh, and no both, limits. Yeah, yeah. And both of those books are have been turned into a movie. So we, I've just finished editing version four of the script. The team have just come back from Cannes, so I've got some meetings this week about that and pushing that forward. So I'm an associate producer on it. So I don't know what I'm doing, but they just said you're going to be an associate producer on set every day, guiding and, and showing how this works, make sure it's all right. So that's exciting. And then you know, over the year, I, mean, I, I started listening to your stuff a long time ago. Um, I think when your podcast was called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, you've changed mm. it now, haven't you? Yeah, Disruptors. And um, so I, I started buying a couple of properties back in the day, I think I've about eight now. Wow, what a... And I'm trying to build that up mm. in the background. Still traveling, speaking, I'm doing a lot of TV work now with my agent. I want to get into TV more as a presenter, not just a guest. And I want to work a lot in the, the veteran and emergency services space. I've got a lot of cool, exciting projects going on with the charity that I'm a trustee of, Reorg. I've got some guys now um, that are building me a bike, a trike, Harley Davidson V-Rod, hopefully, that we're going to tour across America with and make a documentary on, hopefully, with Netflix. So, just some crazy, unexpected opportunities that, that have come from this situation that I don't think would have presented themselves to me if this had not happened. So I just, I just run with it all and sometimes it gets overwhelming, you know what I mean, trying to do it all. I don't know how you manage to do everything you do and, and just keep going and have time for this kind of stuff. I'm also going to relaunch my podcast. That's another thing that's going to happen in the next month. What's it called? It was called the No Limits Podcast, but now I'm going to change it to the Mark Rod Podcast. Right. It's going to... No Limits is a good name though. Yeah, but it was just interviewing people that had inspirational stories to tell, but now I want to go into the military community, the veteran community, the emergency services, sports, jujitsu, anything I'm passionate about, I want to expand it out yeah. and do more of that. So we're going to re we're rebranding that at the minute and then going to relaunch that. And then who knows? Who knows, whatever opportunities come, you know, you said about that 30 second rule, just now I don't do it. I think this is something that I'm going to be doing when all these opportunities come through my agent, I'll just go on that 30 second gut feeling, yes, no, and then do some deeper diving and then just go whatever comes. Mm. Anything that's interesting that keeps me on the right path. So you sound like someone who goes with opportunities that come to you. Are you the sort of person that goes and hunts out opportunities? I, I want this and I'm not stopping till I get it or are you just a little bit more laid back about it? Because you seem very laid back. Sorry. So historically, yeah. absolutely, I've been laid back. And, and now in my quest to try and do more with other people's time, I employed a VA and I've literally just asked her now to go and find the biggest podcast in America, Australia and the UK. Well, you're the, all right with the UK one. You've got that. Yeah, I've got that. Because <laughs> so I, I don't really do anything in the entrepreneurial space, but that's yeah. what I want to do now. In the entrepreneurial space, the veteran community, the emergency services, so now I am going to go for the opportunities. Mm. I don't know why I've always been a little bit like, uh, maybe fear of rejection or something. But now I'm like, right, I'm going for this because I know what I want to do now. I need to make it happen. So we're going to be proactive and we're going to approach people. You know, and I never know, I might be solving their problem. I might be looking for a guest and I could solve their problem and get on a massive platform in Australia or America and then things could really take off. Mm. There's a couple of big names in the... He's been on Joe Rogan a couple of times. He's got a six pack on his face. 
Um, Jocko Willink. Oh, yeah. You should connect up with him. I was going to go on Jocko's podcast there a couple of years ago, but I didn't realise. So I was in Reno and he was down south. And being in the UK, when you can get from one end to the other in eight hours, I was like, where are you, mate? I'll come to the podcast. And he told me, and it was a nine hour drive. So I was like, I'm flying home tomorrow. I can't really do it. Right. But when I go back to America, uh, I'm absolutely going to try and hook up with yeah, him. Yeah, I would. He's, he's, he's done really well. Mm. Um, if you, do you know Ollie? Um, I know Ollie well. Ollie Ollerton. Yeah, I, I called Ollie about the South Korea thing and he went out there and did it. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and David Goggins. Yeah, that guy's a savage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Try, try yeah. and get on his. Has he got a podcast? I don't know, but just connecting up with him, you know, yeah. obviously you've got a lot in common. Um, he talk, He has a rule about, you know, when you get to the limit, your body is nowhere near done. That's, yeah, that's, that's what, what you saying. said. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just... Um, yeah, he's next. He, he mask and taped his shins together when he was doing like that hundred kilometer, twenty four hour race once. Yeah, we had him on the show when he was really big. Yeah, he was intense. Yeah, great. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right about changing the name of the show. Mm-hmm. So he changed it from disruptive entrepreneur to disruptors, and the view of that was I didn't just want to interview entrepreneurs, mm. and sometimes I'd interview. Like, you know, this might not have quite fit in a disruptive entrepreneur concept, mm. but it perfectly fits in disruptors, I think. Because um, I want to make more of a difference and reach more people. So what does that word, disruptive, disruptors, what does that mean to you? I think it's, it's, I mean, I think what I did in rehab was disruptive. I went in there, there was no plan for someone with my injuries. I didn't want to accept that and I disrupted it. I went to America when I shouldn't have, came back, but did you get that bollocking, by the way? Eh, a, a toned down version of it, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyone that just goes into a, an industry or something that already exists and does things their way, a, a different way, do you know what I mean? And, and has success doing that. And I think now that you can do that nowadays. Like, I always look at my son, it still blows my mind that he sits there watching other people play computer games on YouTube when he's got the console himself. But I mean, to me, they disrupted. The, you know, when I was a kid, playing games made you a nerd. Now it's the coolest thing ever, and they make millions of pounds. They disrupted that entire space, and now they're like celebrities. You know, it's and it, you know, hats off to them. I wish I could do that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, where should we follow you? Well, what um, things are you promoting? Where are you most active on social? I'm on social every day. I'm trying to really grow actually my Instagram, my TikTok at the minute. Um, and your username, is it just Mark Ormrod? Just at Mark Ormrod, yeah. O-R-M-R-O-D. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I am every day. Just yeah. trying to, it's hard, isn't it? Trying to grow these platforms. Consistency is all about that. I know. Although I can't really say it's hard sitting next to you with what you've experienced. But, but yeah, consistency is something that most people struggle with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, mine, mine isn't consistency. It's coming up with content ideas. That's the easy bit. Oh, that's why I struggle. I'm like, what do I say? What do I? I was, again, I was listening to yesterday about the live streams on Facebook. So I got straight on Facebook when I got to the hotel. And nice. I'm right. I'm relaunching my podcast. I'm relaunching my lives. Got in the bed and I was like, what do I talk about tomorrow? And I've got no clue. So I didn't do it. <laughs> well, do you know in Rob Team that um, I'm a member? Yeah, you are obviously because yeah. only Rob Team members got that Zoom masterclass. I did a whole course called Content Creation Masterclass and how to come okay. up with a load of content. I'm just about to so. dive into the the asset one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Then, then um, how to invest series. Yeah. 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 Did that with Mark. 
So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll absolutely check that out then, because that's what I, yeah. that's what I struggle with. Yeah. I love this stuff, and I'm gonna go and get set up right now. But if I don't know what to talk about, it's a struggle, right? Mm. Um, so I guess maybe putting a bit of effort into prepping and scripting some stuff out will help. Yeah. But I'll, I'll check that out. Mark, it's been awesome. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much. No, thank you.